the United States is not as sharp at diplomacy as it needs to be. That's the chief finding of the American Academy of Diplomacy. Earlier this year, it published a series of policy and practice recommendations for the State Department. They focus on the idea of multilateral diplomacy. For highlights, we turn to two long-serving former ambassadors. Federal News Network's Eric White spoke with Mark Grossman, vice chairman of the Cohen Group, and Marcy Reese, now a national security consultant. We had the great opportunity some years ago to be invited by Harvard University, the Belfer Center, Marcy, myself, and two other colleagues, uh, to do a report on modernizing the Foreign Service. And we did it. Uh, We were happy with it. Uh, We put out 10 recommendations altogether. And after listening to the response to those 10 recommendations, to thinking about how we could take them forward, Marcy and I both didn't want to just leave that report where it was. We wanted to go forward. And so happily, Arizona State University, who's been a wonderful partner, stepped in to be the new institutional home for the document. And what we wanted to do was move then to four recommendations that we could really try to implement. Um, And as you've seen, Eric, and I hope that your listeners will have a chance to see, we took these four, put out the narrative of what should change. And then what we hope is unique is that every single proposal has connected to it legislative and regulatory language. So if you wanted to do these things, there's no excuse not to do it. And we hope that that's a contribution to the conversation that's going on about the modernization of the State Department, the modernization of American diplomacy. And you said you were approached. uh, Was this something that you both had been thinking about, uh, Marcy? Was this uh, something that you and Mark and your other colleagues had been discussing? Like, we really do need to put out some ideas on how to modernize the Foreign Service? Actually, I hadn't. But when they proposed it to me, I thought, wow, this is a really good idea. And I wanted to be part of the effort. I spent 37 years in the Foreign Service, so I feel pretty deeply invested. And the idea of giving Foreign Service officers more opportunities, better tools, and more chances to do interesting things, I just thought this is something I really want to be associated with. And in those 37 years, what did you, and obviously, you know, that there are more details in the report, but just give me a a broad sense of what you saw as we really do need to modernize the workforce that is populating the Foreign Service and the State Department, and also improving the roles themselves. Uh, What were some of your main takeaways from your career? I think the area that most interested me was education. By that, I mean professional education. In my career, I had introductory training and language training, and then a wonderful course when I became a senior officer that lasted nine months, but nothing in between, no training at all. There was briefly a mid-level course, but it was canceled after some years. So I thought it was really important to think more about this, especially because in my career, I worked quite frequently with the military. And there it's understood that there will be career-long education for everyone in the military. We didn't have that assumption. So that was one area that I was particularly interested in developing and also developing opportunities for Foreign Service officers to study outside, to go to universities, to get degrees, because to me, we should be, we, the Foreign Service, should be the nation's experts on regions, on technical things that involve foreign policy. And we should give people the opportunity to really deepen their knowledge. 
Mark, you seem to agree with the idea of continued development. Uh, what else uh, did you see that you thought was uh, an important aspect of being a good foreign service representative? So I certainly agree with Marcy on professional education. I'd say also, and you noted it, Eric, in one of your previous questions, that what we tried to do also was highlight the things that would really do more for the Foreign Service, but we didn't forget the civil service either. They're a very important part, as you know, of the State Department. And we wanted to inspire them as well and open opportunities for them as well. The other thing that I wanted to try to emphasize were some themes that we put in both reports, but certainly go through this latest report. One was, as you can imagine, kind of a diverse workforce, diversity, equity, and inclusion, a workforce that looks like America. We came back and back and back. And this I found throughout my career. The State Department's culture needs to change. So, for example, on education, professional education, the culture's got to change so people value it and people want to be part of that educational system and are rewarded for it. So the culture's got to change. The other thing is then is this connection back to the American people. Again, your listeners, I think, will recognize that one of the challenges of American diplomacy is that people serve abroad. And people have a hard time sometimes explaining uh, to people what it is that diplomats do. And so your listeners will see all through this report connecting, connecting, connecting to the American people. And that's why I'm so attracted, as Marcy is to professional education, I'm really attracted to the whole question of a reserve corps so that, like our military forces, We've got a surge capacity. The State Department can do things that it couldn't do before. And very importantly, it's a great connection to the American people. Yeah, reading over the report, it seemed as if you were putting importance on having a diplomatic reserve corps, like you said, that you can kind of go to when experts are needed for any natural disasters or crises that happen. As somebody coming from the outside, is that's not already happening? Yeah, that, that kind of took me for a loop there. <laughs> um, can either one of you comment on that? Of course, if there is an emergency, a disaster, uh, or a political emergency, we, the Foreign Service, steps up to it. But that often involves taking people out of their day job and moving them to the emergency and leaving the day job vacant, which is definitely not ideal. So the idea of having a reserve corps is that if you need to surge You have extra people who are ready, who are trained, who have the knowledge, have the language, uh, whatever is necessary to meet that exigency. Eric, I'd also say one of the things we tried to build into the Reserve Corps is it wouldn't be just for crises. It would also be able, in small numbers, uh, to bring in people that the State Department needed expertise in that it might not have. For example, if you needed people who were data scientists or people who knew about a lot about AI or machine learning, and I'm not saying that foreign service and civil service people can't learn those things. They can't. But from time to time, maybe it would be great if you could call on the expertise from around this country for specialized items. And that's why, as you saw in the report, we left open the possibility that people from academia, people from state and local government, people from all around the country could be called upon to act as reservists for both crises and for uh, the kinds of information and expertise the department needs. We covered three out of the four aspects so far. And the other one I was interested in is holding diplomatic leadership to a standard of uh, accountability and authority and responsibility. Uh, Can you all just uh, explain a little bit about that and uh, tell me what you 
envision as having that as the standard set by the diplomatic service? I think in the first instance, there's the question of ambassadors and taking their responsibilities. There is a requirement in place when ambassadors are nominated for the the president, actually, since the ambassador is the president's representative, to state what the person's qualifications are. Our report, we suggested really strengthening that statement that is put forward when someone is nominated to be an ambassador. And we have also written a new letter to ambassadors. Maybe this is not so widely known, but when ambassadors take their posts, they receive a letter of instruction from the president in which he or she someday tells them that what they ought to be doing and what standards they need to live up to. It's a rather profound uh, document. So we have written a new letter that we think would strengthen the accountability, the performance, the authority, the understanding of the responsibilities of our ambassadors. Ambassador Marcy Reese is a private consultant. Ambassador Mark Grossman is vice chairman of the Cohen Group, speaking with Federal News Network's Eric White. We'll post this interview along with a link to the diplomacy study at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Podcast One or wherever you get your shows. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. After an exemplary career as a former executive at the FBI, focused on policy and strategy, Sasha O'Connell, Ph.D., is guiding future federal leaders as the executive in residence in the School of Public Affairs at American University. Sasha joins host Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, to discuss her exciting career, the future of the federal workforce, and the lessons she's learned along the way. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA, and today I'm thrilled to be joined by Sasha O'Connell. Sasha is an executive in residence in the Department of Justice, Law, and Criminology at the School of Public Affairs at American University and spent the majority of her career at the FBI and most recently as the organization's chief policy advisor, science and technology and the Section Chief of Office and Policy for the FBI's Deputy Director. Sasha, welcome. Jane, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Can you give us an example of someone early in your career that motivated you? And then, and, and how did, what did that look like? Sure, absolutely. So it sounds almost cliche, but it was the dining room table. So I grew up um, with a stepfather who spent 30 years at the Veterans Administration at the VA. And he talked at the dinner table. He started as a social worker and then sort of rose up into management, administration, and leadership. And his stories, right, and his approach really, really impacted me. My mom, interestingly, ended up in a career in public service. She was a prosecutor. She's currently a retired state superior court judge. Um, But she had a big career change also in her 40s. She went back to law school in her 40s. So getting all of that in the mix at a young age at the dinner table really, really impacted me um, in really specific ways. Yeah, that's amazing. My my father was part of um, the generation that took um, President Kennedy's call to action. And he took that to heart, and he went and worked at the Department of Interior and a number of other places in federal service. So it's, it's catching when, when you're around it. You've held a number of leadership roles at the FBI, which is historically a male-dominated organization. What skills or traits helped you most as you navigated that? Yeah, it's such a, it's an interesting and challenging yeah. sort of situation and question. One 
don't think I still am reflecting on it. I've been out of the FBI about six years, and I'm sort of still thinking about it. I think the bottom line was when I was there, and I really grew up there, um, I, didn't, I didn't know any different. I grew up with male cousins and brothers, and you know, it was sort of a continuation of, of my existence. So it did, you know, in retrospect, it, it was a really unique situation, but it didn't necessarily feel that way for me at the time. I think staying mission-focused, staying not about me, staying flexible in terms of problem-solving all helped me. I will say there's resources today that weren't there when I was there, or certainly when I was starting out. There's a lot of affinity groups for women in national security, women in federal law enforcement. And I will say I think I would have really benefited from access to those kind of resources as I was coming up. Um, I had both incredible mentors, men and women, um, women across the organization who I became very close with, who were incredible supports, not just getting the job and starting out, but sort of matriculating through. But again, I'm really sort of proud of and involved in some of the work of those external organizations that bring women across government, um, executive women in government, and those kind of organizations together, because I think it is really, really helpful um, as one moves through. Yeah, we we actually work with a, a number of those too, and and go to their events and conferences and support them because it's important. How has your leadership style developed or changed over the years? Well, I think I've gotten a little more confident in it. Right, the seeds were there at that dining room table. One thing um, that carried through that I learned from my stepdad was to focus on the process. He would talk at dinner about big ideas or big changes and how to get from here to there was part of his day job, and he thought about explicitly, was getting other people on board, getting that stakeholder engagement, getting other people to think it was their idea if that was required. And that's something I started out with as a gift, right, that kind of approach. And then I got confidence in that, and then I added things. I will say, as I moved on, my appreciation for taking care of is maybe the wrong word, but really focusing on the people who work with you and for you in some instances um, you know, making sure that they have what they need to be successful in a tactical way. But then also something I definitely learned at the FBI as I went along is, you know, the importance of creating an environment that is supportive and inspiring. You know, we joke about it, but food has played a pretty serious role um, in my leadership style over time. Um, I learned from great mentors. I worked with Bill Estevez at the FBI who had a full-scale cappuccino maker at his cubicle, right, and would host coffee hour, and you'd see the steam rising across the cubicles. Um, I worked with a, a great friend who used to carry hot frittatas for breakfast celebrations on the, on the metro, right, in one of those sort of coolie bags. Um, and so I've sort of, I think it's been additive in terms of learning, gaining confidence in my approach, and then adding these pieces as I go that I've certainly learned from mentors and colleagues. And clearly you never let anything get in your way. You were mission-focused, as you mentioned, and you just got the job done no matter what was in front of you. Well, I wish, I wish, Jane, it was, it was that easy. I mean, I think we had a lot of success. Um, one thing has always been my approach when starting out as a leader, too, is to solve near-term problems. I always say sort of deliver short and then you can push them long, right? So we've, we don't always succeed in those long-term goals or those, you know, sort of blue-sky ideas as leaders we want to achieve. Um, but we deliver on those short-term pieces, right? And you get that buy-in from the stakeholders. And then often you can push toward those bigger dreams, hopes, aspirations, and goals. Um, I would like to say I was 100% on both fronts. <laughs> I'm not sure your characterization is 100% accurate there, but I'll take it um, in, this, in this sense. Looking back, what, what's one piece of advice you might have given your younger self when you first started? 
Yeah, it's it's interesting today too. Working with students, I get that chance, right, to give my essentially my younger self um, advice every day. And one thing we talk a lot about, and I wish I had thought more explicitly about, is really it's about calibration, right? And so I always think Emeril Lagasse would say, like, a stove has dials for a reason, right? It's not like all hot or all cold. And I think it's the same here. In some ways, in my career, I had to learn to tone it down, right? And to, you know, certainly at the FBI, sometimes you need to take that backseat at a meeting and wait to be invited to the table. And that's really the appropriate way to build rapport, relationships, and trust. Other times, I needed to learn to tune it up, right, to up the volume a little bit. Um, I had a wonderful boss, Dave Schlendorf, who we were in a meeting together with big bosses at the FBI once, and I was working for Dave. And we left the meeting, and we were walking back to the office, and I made a point. I don't even remember what the point was now. And he stopped in the hall and said, why didn't you say that in the meeting? You're not helping me, right? Telling me this now, now I have to go back and fix this. And I realized, so well, sometimes you have to tone it down, sometimes you have to tone it up, and that modulation, that sort of volume control about when to lean in and out, if you will, um, that's, you know, even just thinking about that explicitly for folks starting out, I think is really helpful because it's not one size fits all. Right. I, I totally agree and understand that it isn't one size fits all. And a lot of leadership is described in bumper stickers, sayings, and I don't think that's realistic. I think it's situationally dependent, and you have to be self-aware and aware of your circumstances to adjust. That's well said. You're training the next generation, or helping to train them, federal leaders through AU's School of Public Affairs. How, How do we encourage, how do you encourage young people to answer the call of federal service? You know, I'm so lucky at AU. We, we draw in, right, students who are primed for this um, and who are passionate when they walk in our doors. Even with that population, you know, there, there are headwinds, right? USA Jobs, right? Just even getting educated, these pieces. So, so helping with that is a whole set of work. I'm also really passionate about, as you point out, reaching out to a diversity of folks who haven't even thought about these careers as careers. I had a conversation with a young woman the other day, and she was talking about law school. It's, I'm, I'm fully supportive of law school. And I said, have you ever thought about a career in, in federal service? And she said, uh, isn't that for old people? <laughs> I said, uh, <laughs> um, okay. So, you know, I mean, there's an education to do, right? Clearly, she's never seen the softball leagues, you know, down on the mall or kickball or any of the fun we all have in town where we certainly did when we were younger. But I, I really try, again, podcasts like this and other venues to put myself out there and really talk about what it's like, the opportunities I had at the FBI to be in the middle of the mission space and to explain that the federal government needs all kinds of skills, right, and diversity of thought, right, and diversity of people. So so there's that sort of working with the group that's primed for us, and we need to help them get over those barriers, get in and then stay and stay um, engaged and passionate and then there's reaching those new audiences. And there's a lot of work both places, but it's a lot of fun to work with young folks who are passionate about it. So I'm really lucky in my current job. And career civil service is a great path if somebody wants to take it. Our board is 100% SES level career civil servants. They are all dedicated. They have a real passion for what they're doing. They could go work anywhere, but they choose federal service. And there's no place, I always tell young folks who ask me about it, there's no place you're going to get the level of responsibility quickly as you do in federal service, right? And, and yes, yeah, sometimes things move slow. It's supposed to move slow, right? We talk about the reasons for that, too. But there's, there's really no other industry, maybe some startups you might get this experience, but really where you can be in the middle of mission space, whether you're 
passionate about the environment or national security or healthcare, you know, public health, and you're going to get in there quickly um, and you're going to get in the mix and get exposure, experience, and opportunity for impact that's really unlike any other career. Perfect. Well, thank you, Sasha, and thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Shane Canfield, and this has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. Talk to you next time. Reconnect with a carpool or vanpool. Even if you're commuting just a few days a week, Commuter Connections can match you with others that live and work near or at the same place as you. Prefer taking the bus or train? There's never been a better time to reconnect with transit. Plus, you have the added comfort of knowing Guaranteed Ride Home is there for any unexpected emergency for free. For more options, visit commuterconnections.org or call 1-800-745-RIDE. Some restrictions apply.